Uh, let me add my welcome this morning. My name is Alistair. Um, I'm the lead pastor here, but don't worry about it. You're not going to remember me, apparently, the first time you meet me. I would love to meet you after the service and make no impression whatsoever. <laughs> but in all seriousness, Aras, thank you for your story. So glad you're a part of our community. Jesus says, your sorrow will turn into joy. Your sorrow will turn into joy. How do you feel about that? When joy is brought up, especially around this season, I find there's two polar opposite reactions. There's the response of the optimist who goes, yes, joy, happiness, merriment, Christmas. Yes, 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 yes. Life of faith should be joy and health and wealth. And if you're not joyful and health, healthy and wealthy, something is amiss with your faith. That is one extreme that misses the mark. The other response is the response of the pessimist. Their motto could be suffering now, glory later. Suffering now, glory later. They might even have deep suspicion or reservations toward joy as it's too cheery for the actual troubles and challenges we face in life. And so we grit our teeth and we endure because at the end of the age, when Christ returns, that's when we'll have our reward. That's when we'll enter into bliss. But this extreme also misses the mark. So if a motto could be derived from the passage we just read, one pastor I listened to says it could be this, suffering now, joy now, glory later. And I agree. There is trouble in this life, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. And joy exists alongside this trouble and even finds us within it. Even so, the best is yet to come when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom through his judgment and justice and builds a new heaven and earth. So yes, suffering now, joy now, glory later. Now, it's important to get a definition of joy because they can be a little fleeting. Uh, joy, of course, is an emotion. It's an emotion. It can be quiet or loud, gentle or intense. It can be an inner experience that isn't visible to others, a laughter of the heart, a subtle joy. Or it can be an outer experience, totally visible to others, a joyful presence, an avert joy. But joy is not a state, as some suggest. It is most certainly an emotion. It is a bright, positive emotion that occurs when our hearts are apprehended by something good. Joy is a bright, positive emotion when our hearts are apprehended by something that is good. This is joy. And you can be open to it. You can cultivate it. I did a whole doctorate on that. And yet... You can't make yourself joyful. Joy, more, more often than not, takes a hold of us than we take a hold of it. So joy, it's, a, it's associated with this season we're in, the season of Advent, the season of Christmas. It's accompanied by good cheer and celebration and presents and lights and what have you. Yet, like you got to say yet, from my experience... The desire from joy often arises from its absence. And joy can even be birthed 
through suffering or some kind of tragedy. So sorrow often precedes joy. This isn't a rule, but it's quite common. And so if you're thinking about your sorrows right now and your troubles and and you hear the theme of joy and it feels like the wrong vibe for you, feels incongruous even, I want to gently say perhaps, perhaps, perhaps joy may still apprehend you in this place and not someplace else in these conditions and not some ideal ones. So this morning, I want to dwell on one verse that we've just read, verse 20. Jesus says, your sorrow will be turned into joy. And in this verse, sorrow not only precedes joy, but sorrow turns into joy. How do you feel about that idea? So here are the three ideas I want to explore to help us get our minds around what Jesus says. Uh, Inappropriate joy, transformative joy, and full joy. So let's begin with our first point, inappropriate joy. We do not always respond to things appropriately. I like to think I'd be someone who's remembered. People don't always respond that way. Uh, Several years ago, I was in a tense meeting in which I was trying to reconcile with someone. And after months of conflict and a long meeting with a mediator to help us through it, we finally got to some common ground. And it looked, as it looked like things had resolved, I started laughing uncontrollably. I couldn't contain myself. It came from this deep place of relief, but it was totally inappropriate. Wrong timing. It's never happened to me before. Thank God it has never happened since. You know, I've heard some people who laugh. You know, there's people who laugh around grief. Man, I feel for you. We don't always respond to things appropriately. Similarly, we're capable of an inappropriate joy. An inappropriate joy. Have you ever thought about that? In our passage, Jesus, he's talking to his disciples about his departure. They're having a farewell conversation. He's preparing them for the horror of the cross. It's Thursday evening. Tomorrow is Good Friday. So in only a few hours, they will weep. And they will lament. And this will last for a few days as his lifeless and tattered body is placed in a cold, barren tomb and sealed there. So this is the context for their sorrow. But the world will rejoice, says Jesus. This is inappropriate joy. Let me just clarify something quickly. In John's gospel, the phrase, the world, it's primarily used with a negative sense. Whereas in the whole New Testament, when you see the world come up, it's a little bit more nuanced. It's ambivalent. It's never neutral. So the world, it can have glimmers of good. God made a very good world. But the world can also have heavy shadows of bad. The world is used in a variety of ways throughout the New Testament. But primarily in John's gospel, negative connotations. In John's imagination, the world represents everything that resists and rejects the good rule and reign of God. For example, in 1 John 2.16, the apostle writes, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. So John very specifically is speaking about the negative 
influence of the world and not some of the positive that remains in the world. And so unsurprisingly, understood from this perspective, the world will rejoice when it appears that Jesus has been dealt the definitive death blow. He's been dealt with. He's gone. It's done. We rejoice. We are capable of misconstruing joy in nasty and unhealthy ways. We're told in the Gospels, for example, that the chief priests, they were delighted. The word is they rejoiced when Judas came to them and said he wanted to betray Jesus. Uh, humanity can be vulnerable to a kind of joy uh, that the Germans called Skatenfrud, uh, taking pleasure in somebody else's misfortune. I wish we had a word for that. That's a good one. I don't think it's pronounced that way. Another haunting example of misconstrued joy, if you're not aware, is that joy was a major theme in uh, the propaganda of Nazi Germany. But the world will rejoice, says Jesus. And so it raises the question, when are we taking delight in the wrong things? Where might we be culpable of inappropriate joy? You know, perhaps it's the quiet delight when someone we dislike gets what we think they deserve. Or maybe it's when we take pleasure in the argument and putting someone in their place. It could be that rush and initial delight we feel in fulfilling or indulging in our own desires, whatever they may be. And it's hard to admit to this part of ourselves. Because it's to admit that sin runs so deeply that we can actually take for, uh, joy in the many forms sin takes. Vengeance and quarrels and greed and all kinds of immoral desires. You name it, we can enjoy it. No wonder the author of Hebrews describes sin as the fleeting pleasures of sin. So just because something feels good or because it gives us joy, it doesn't mean it's good that we've lost this truth in our cultural moment. My point is this. The fact that you feel joy in a given circumstance does not mean that the thing giving you joy is inherently good. You should not just do whatever makes you happy because what makes you happy might actually be disordered. It might actually be sin. We do not stand head tall above the religious elite of Jesus' day. We too are capable of inappropriate joy. So let me ask, is there any inappropriate joy in your life? Let's move on to our second point, transformative joy. In verse 20, Jesus says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And scripture has varied approaches to sorrow and joy. Uh, for example, James in his letter writes, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So to give it some context, James is talking about how we relate to our sin. There are times in which we must choose to grieve over our sin, our personal sin, our corporate sin, systemic sin, especially when that sin elicits an inappropriate joy, James says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. On the other hand, Paul writes in Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. 
And in this instance, we're reminded that it is entirely appropriate to share in the emotions of others. We can celebrate together and we can mourn together. We can make room for varied experiences and there's not one normative emotional state for those of us who follow Jesus. There's emotional breadth to our life shared together and we make room for this breadth, whatever it may be. But in our passage, Jesus is talking about the transformation of emotions. Sorrow will turn into joy, is what he says. So there's times when seemingly contradictory emotions exist side by side, like sorrow alongside joy. But then there's times that the one becomes the soil for the other. Jesus says sorrow will turn into joy. So he's not thinking about how they exist together He's not saying that sorrow decreases as joy increases, but that sorrow is transformed somehow into joy. So again, keeping our context in mind, which we always need to try to do, especially when we're zooming in on just one verse, this is about a specific kind of joy. This is about resurrection joy, or as John says later in the gospel, confounding joy. It's the joy that emerges on Easter Sunday, a joy that confounds the obvious facts. Dead stuff stays dead, except now when it doesn't in the case of the empty tomb. The joy that Jesus has in mind for his disciples is the joy of the world being defied. The world will rejoice over his death, but it's an ironic rejoicing. Uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa uses this metaphor of divine bait I love this. Through his incarnation and death, Jesus was like bait on a fish hook. And the world was lured in and happily swallowed and consumed him. It rejoiced, not realizing that through his death, it had just feasted at a banquet of its own defeat. That in the darkness, light then bursts forth because Christ is inextinguishable light, love, and life. You see, the the grief and the sorrow that the disciples felt over witnessing Christ's torturous death was transformed into joy at his resurrection. And so Jesus, he, he wants us to get this. And so he uses an illustration in verse 21 to help us wrap our heads around it. Uh, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. I think that's a bit of an understatement, but she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, full disclosure, I can't say that I understand the sorrow of of birth. I've been at two. But I do remember the pain of Julia's like precision death grip when she grabbed a tendon in my neck that still twitches to this day. The joy of a human being born is paved by sorrow and anguish. And Jesus is saying in some way that sorrow is even turned into joy as the human is born. And in the same way, the sorrow and anguish felt over Christ's crucifixion is turned into joy. It's a kind of birth that cannot occur any other way because it's specifically the joy of the death and resurrection. So let's be clear on this point. The sorrow transformed into joy in this passage is very specific. 
It's the sorrow of disciples beholding a crucified Messiah, the death of a beloved friend, the termination of their hopes and dreams for the future. And it's the transformation of this sorrow into the confounding joy of the resurrection, encountering the risen Lord alive and well, yet still bearing the marks of the cross in his, bar, in his body, that sorrow transformed into joy. So how do we then experience this transforming joy? Well, it often happens to us when we start to grasp the death and the resurrection of Jesus for the first time, or afresh, or yet again, or once more. For us, it can be the sorrow of the necessity of the cross. Sorrow over the sight of Christ crucified for our, for our sins in our place. The sorrowful recognition of our inappropriate joy in the very sins in which he died to forgive. And so we can experience a healthy sorrow when we contemplate the meaning and purpose of the cross. But this sorrow can be transformed because God doesn't want us to wallow in sorrow over our sins. The resurrection can give way to joy because life bursts forth out of these places. It's the joy of knowing we're loved. You were loved by God before he went to the cross. Even while we were sinners, even while we were enemies, the scriptures say Christ died for us because he loved us. It's the joy of knowing you are loved as a child of God. It's the joy of total forgiveness that as far as the east is from the west, so far as God put his sins, your sins from you. Although your sins were red like scarlet, now they are, you are white as snow. It's the joy of justification, being set right and, and restored into an intimate relationship with God our Father. Jesus taking the sorrow of our sin and turning it into the joy of new life. And we experience this transformative joy as the Holy Spirit presses into our souls and presses these truths into our hearts and our minds. But it is important to name that not every sorrow we experience will be transformed into joy in this life. That's not the promise here. Jesus isn't issuing a command. He's not saying transform your sorrow into joy through the power of positive thinking and push away every other negative thought. Now, this passage isn't advocating for some sort of toxic positivity. Jesus doesn't want us to force our sorrow into joy, let alone anybody else's. The cross and the empty tomb are the only ingredients in this passage for sorrow to turn into joy. And yet, in the big picture, the accrued sorrow of this life, all the pain, all the toil, all the trouble, it too will be transformed into joy at Christ's return. This is part of our hope that we remember during Advent. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.16, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving, achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We don't know the mechanics of this promise, exactly how God will use all of this suffering to achieve this glory and joy for us. We just know that he will. And our hope 
is that when we arrive on eternity's shores, when we step foot into the room that Christ has prepared for us in the Father's house, from that vantage point, all the suffering of the world will appear light and momentary. From our current place in time, from this vantage point, it's not light. It's full of grief and sorrow, but our hope is that the power of Christ's death and resurrection, a transformation will occur in which all our troubles and a toil become subservient to the joy awaiting us. They will actually amplify the joy that is to come. They will achieve it for us somehow. This is our hope. That ultimately, when Christ establishes his good kingdom on earth, all of our sorrow will be transformed into joy. That's our hope. And in the meantime, Jesus gives us a promise. Verse 22, I'll see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. When the sorrow of the cross is transformed into the joy of the resurrection, there's a permanence to it. This is, to, this is not to say there's never going to be an ebb and flow to your emotional life. You know, Jesus isn't saying you're going to be perpetually joyful with a permanent grin slapped on your face. But he is saying that no one can take away the joy of the death and resurrection. And that the death and the resurrection is always capable of reconfiguring your heart. So friends, let's turn to our last point. Full joy. Full joy. Jesus says in verse 22 through 24, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So there's trouble now, joy now, glory later. And in the now, Jesus promises fullness of joy. Last week, we talked about how God's home feels like peace as his spirit makes his home in us. In the exact same way, God's home feels like joy. And this happens as the spirit dwells in us. And Jesus' promise here is that we can share in his joy. In the previous chapter, he said, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full so Jesus says his own joy will top our joy off, will fill us up. So I find it worth asking, what gives Jesus joy? There's three explicit examples in the New Testament. I'll be really quick. Luke's gospel, the disciples, they're sent out on a mission trip. They come back rejoicing that the demons listen to them. And Jesus says, no, no, nah. -uh. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then Luke says, Jesus prayed and rejoiced and said, Father, I thank you that you've revealed yourself and made yourself known to these little children. Later in Luke's gospel, Jesus tells three parables about a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. And the common thread through the three parables, the joy that erupts in heaven when one sinner turns and repents. And in Hebrews, we're told Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. And in that whole book, the joy set before Jesus is bringing many sons and daughters to glory. You are the joy set before him. So what gives Jesus joy? Jesus takes joy in people being known by the Father. 
He takes joy in people discovering who they are in him. Jesus takes joy in opening up a way back home. And he has joy over the anticipated future of us dwelling in our father's house with him. So how do we share in this joy here and now? In our passage, Jesus connects full joy to prayer. Kind of feels like a cop-out. Like it kind of feels like the right Christian answer. If you want to be joyful, pray, but let's just press into it a little bit. Jesus says, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Now, if I was writing John's gospel, like I would at least put a footnote here with like a few qualifications about the sort of things you can ask. I'd want like a terms and conditions, but that's not what John does. He just holds out this radical promise Jesus makes. Jesus says, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. And these really are the two ingredients of Christian prayer. We pray to our Father in the name of Jesus. If you've been around the church for any length of time or people praying, you probably usually hear them start prayer, something like our Father, and then at the end they say, in Jesus' name, and that's it. That's how we bookend prayer. We don't pray solely to God as creator, even though he is, and it's okay to pray to him as creator. And we don't pray to God as, you know, the aloof deity who set the universe into motion and now is kicking it back in his armchair, generally disinterested in what he's made. We pray to God, our Father. And when we say our Father, it reminds us fundamentally of our relationship with God. He's a father and we're children. Let me put it this way. You can come to my place late at night. Now, I'm not going to flash my, my address up, but you could come to my place, knock on the door, and I might answer. I might let you in. Or I might keep the blinds down and the lights off. You may or may not get access to my presence whenever you want. But either of my daughters can walk into my bedroom whenever they so desire, and I will be available to them. I will even call room service while in a hotel in Orlando to get Ansley a cup of milk and a banana at 3 a.m. You know, I once met someone who said her prayer life is like curling up in her father's lap. That's exactly it. You can walk right into the very presence of God, ask him for anything. Because you're his child. Now, he might not give you exactly what you ask for, but he will answer. He will listen. Which is why we pray your will be done in the Lord's prayer. But the fact John is stressing here is that we can talk to our father in an intimate way because Jesus has restored this intimacy with the father for us. And that's why we end our prayers in Jesus' name. It's not a magic formula. It is a reminder of the good and beautiful reality we're now caught up into. So there's many things that can help us cultivate joy. And if you want to talk about that, I would love to talk about that. I'll just hand you my dissertation. But according to Jesus, prayer, intimate, consistent prayer is essential He says, ask and you receive and your joy may be full. And the joy that comes in prayer, sure, it might be a prayer being answered. It might be that banana and milk in the dead of night. But I think the deeper, the full joy is the intimacy, the relationship. 
the child curled up in its father's lap. See, joy is being apprehended by what is good. And the joy offered to us is the joy of being apprehended by the goodness of the Father. And the goodness of the Father gets a hold of our hearts through prayer. It's joy. It's joy. So, trouble now, joy now, glory later. I want to invite you in this Advent season to lament over any inappropriate joy. We can hand it over to Christ and see it crucified with him. And through his spirit, may we experience the transformation of that specific sorrow into joy. May we know the joy of Jesus, the joy of becoming sons and daughters of God. And through prayer, may this joy apprehend our hearts It's not just a joy for us, a joy for the world. So may we share in the specific joy of Jesus, the Lord who delights in people being known by the Father and discovering who they are in him. It's joy for the world. And so may we, in small ways, bless the world with the joy of Jesus, the joy of discovering the goodness of God. Let's pray.